Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me as always is Cameron. You know, I wish that I had Jerry's girl. Jerry's girl. Why can't I find a woman chained to bed? Oh, wow. Well, did I go for it? You, you, this is part of my recent run of trying to do parody songs uh-huh. based on... Everything that we record. <laughs> yeah. I've done it across many shows recently. Mm-hmm. How'd that one go, you think? Oh, uh, it's pr- pretty good. I think you're going to start selling tickets soon as uh, Stephen King Al. It will be like a second level parody, like a well, weird Al, but just now. for Stephen come on King now. things. It's weird, Steve. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it was right there. It was free. <laughs> no, I think it's got to be Stephen King Al. Uh, we read, uh, Gerald's game. Yeah, we did. Wait, let's go. Wait, mm-hmm. hold on. Wait. Uh, what do you think about the song Jesse's Girl? I think that that song is pretty good. I like the scene in Boogie Nights where that plays. What happens? I don't Is that, is that the scene where, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Dr. Octopus is throwing yes. all those fire Yes. <laughs> Alfred Molina. Yes. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Yep. I forgot that Jesse's girl is playing during that, but that's a ex- truly excellent scene. Yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was improvised. Did you know that? No. It was like not planned for that scene, I believe. I think Alfred Molina, like, I mean, not improvised, and then he just started doing it, but he like came and he was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I don't think that's in the script. I'm pretty sure. Wow. I could be wrong. Wow. Uh, yeah. Speaking of things that aren't in the script, no, I think we should keep talking about Jesse's girl okay. for a while. Uh, I forget the the guy who did it is a blonde guy, right? Uh, a blonde guy? I don't know. All I remember is from the music video. There's like a dog wearing a wearing human clothes sitting in a movie theater. Is that Jesse's girl? I actually no. It's is it's sort of it, it like observes what I guess is Jesse and his girl. Wait, is the dog the the POV character of the song who's jealous of Jesse and his girl? I think so. I think that's kind of the sense that I get. That's better than this book we read. <laughs> Which, weirdly enough, has someone named Jesse, uh, a man and a woman, and a dog. Well, and she's Jerry's yeah. girl. I did it on purpose. No, it all comes together. Yeah. Uh, so you didn't like it. I'm taking it. Hi, you know, I think I don't I don't know if I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very good. Is that <laughs> is there, are those two things different? You know, yeah, what I mean? they can like, be, but not necessarily. I think it's an interesting uh-huh. book. I think I have a lot to say about the book. I don't think I enjoyed reading the book and I don't think I'll ever read it again. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. So have you read Dolores Claiborne? 
I, I did, but back when I read this book for the first time. Okay. And I remember way more about this book than I read. That book's got like a cursed painting in it. No, that's Rose Matter. Okay, then no, I don't remember Dolores Claymore at all. <laughs> uh, I'm just asking because uh, I guess I'll talk about it this episode and also next episode. Um, uh, but I read Dolores Claiborne first, and then I read this mm-hmm. one. And the thing uh, to say kind of at the well, I mean, there's many things to say about this novel, but uh, I, I tried leading with this because uh, this novel and the next novel are related. Uh, Dolores Claiborne mm-hmm. and Gerald's Game are like parallel novels in a, a very oblique way, um, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, when We'll talk more in the episode later what about what these specific kind of like parallel events are. Uh, but, you know, the thing that I think is interesting about it here is that uh, we're seeing kind of a, a premonition of what's going to happen with desperation and the regulators as well, right? Uh, this this is a very experimental novel for King, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, so on the one hand, the parallelness of it, Dolores Claiborne is actually written mm-hmm. first. This one is written second. Oh, right. But published first. And I think I'm going to say more about uh, what I think about that during the Dolores Claiborne episode, because that's the one that I read first. I happened to read that one first, mm-hmm. and frankly, I just think reading that one first and then reading this one works better than the other way. But I didn't know if uh, uh, you had a thought on this at all. <laughs> no, I no, not really. We, we, we'll just save all that for the Dolores Claiborne episode. And guess what? If you're listening to this episode and it's the first episode you're listening to, hit that subscribe button. Subscribe. subscribe. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's an experimental novel in that way that there's something kind of like formal going on here. Formal might not be the best word, but uh, uh, something weird going on with the novel itself. Uh, Conceptual. Yes, conceptual. Uh, And then the other kind of big experimental swing here for King, at least, is that this is the first of a couple of novels. Dolores Claiborne is is the next one. It's one of them uh, that he writes that are primarily about women and about women's kind of like situations Mm -hmm. and feelings. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I always think of them as like his his like novels about women. And they seem to come about uh, out of a desire to try to write those sorts of stories um maybe and i i tried looking up to see if there was anything to find out about this like interviews or, or something along those lines uh and i have been unsuccessful in digging that stuff up but it does feel like you know something's hmm. happening here in 1992 when gerald's game is, is published uh where king sits down and thinks like i'm going to write novels like about female characters from like female perspectives and like Gerald's game in particular is dedicated to, and I just want to uh, double check this because it's quite a bit. Yes. Uh, this book is dedicated with love and admiration to six good women. Uh, and then a whole bunch of folks uh, who one of them is his wife, Tabitha Spruce King. Um, there's lots of spruces in here. So it seems like it's dedicated to uh, various uh, women in Tabitha's family. And then the next book, Dolores Claiborne is dedicated to his mother, uh, hmm. so some, something is happening here. He's obviously thinking about the women in his life and then, uh, that is showing up in his fiction. Uh, we'll talk about, I guess, more, uh, w- what that entails once we get into this book and what is actually happening in it, which isn't too rosy, I'll say. Uh, nope. It takes a long time to, to do too. Um, you know, it just takes a long time to, like, learn all about all the things that happen. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is I I think you're right. 
this gets talked about in Stephen King discussions as Stephen King's novels about women. This is how I was introduced to the book. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, Stephen King wrote a bunch of novels about women. Uh, They're kind of like social realist novels. You know, there's like light fantasy-ish, horror-ish stuff going on here, right? But, I mean, in this book, spoilers, but even the fantasy stuff is revealed to be unfantastical, right? right? Like, it is It is just uh, uh, due to the reality of psychology uh, and and the, the corruptness of the human mind, right? Like, a thing that is mundane, actually, gets made fantastical in, in perception, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, uh, but, I mean, they kind of stick out. They stick out pretty directly because they are... Uh, to my mind, I mean, this is a this is a Bachman book, right? Yeah, like, very much so. It's it's relatively, you know, it, it's a book about uh, the American upper middle class that is grounded in reality and is about the kind of thoughts and feelings of the bourgeois, mm-hmm. just straight mm-hmm. up. Like that's what it is. It's about a high powered lawyer and his kept wife. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the lawyer sucks. And, and the <laughs> and the lawyer sucks. And like. Bad garbage happens to her. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like it's a cruel novel. Yes. Um. In in a lot of ways, and uh, like, and that's the word I think I've used the most to describe the Bachman books. And I don't think that inherently makes it bad. But I don't. You know, I think I'm on the record here. I don't think this is where Stephen King excels. Yeah. Like, I don't think these are his best books, and I don't think that that's the place where he does his best work. Mm-hmm. Um. Although I do agree with what, something you said earlier, I think this is a pretty experimental book. I think this is a book where a lot of things that we actually associate with King now, storytelling techniques, um, like formal moves, like how to end a chapter, how to bring a chapter back. Mm-hmm. This seems to me to be a break point, uh, you know, of like something new happening in the same way that kind of after the fact we were able to look at Christine as being a real break point, mm-hmm. right? Like. The way we talked about that novel at the time when we read it is like it's a summative novel, and it is, right, of all the strategies he's before, but he's doing all kinds of interesting other stuff. But looking back from the end of the 80s, from looking back from the Tommyknockers to Christine, you can see that Christine inaugurates a change that gets paid off, you mm-hmm. know, at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. And I think that Gerald's game, uh, you know, I can see a lot of the 2010 Steve in this book in a way that I couldn't really see those 2010 Steve in those books from the 80s or 70s. Hmm. So um, I'm not mad we read it. I, I think it's interesting. I think we have a lot going on. I, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about here. But I would, you know, just to be upfront, it's not my favorite book that we've read. Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously, I'll expound upon this as we go forward. But I remember being sort of pleasantly surprised by this first by this book when I first read it in high school, probably. Yeah. Um, or that's when I yeah. read it. Uh, I remember not thinking it was going like... Uh, I had, you know, my ideas about how Steve would pull off certain things already, even then. And when I thought about how Stephen King would write a story about a woman who gets handcuffed to a bed with her husband's corpse lying next to her, uh, I I just didn't think that that was necessarily going to be a good time. The book is still not a good time. As you said, it's very Bachmanian, uh, very cruel, very uh, uh, sort of bleak at moments. Very uh, uh, mired in physical pain and misery and that sort of thing. Uh, But I remember thinking, actually, it worked pretty well as a thriller. Um, Mm -hmm. And this reading, I came away pretty disappointed in it. Uh, Not because, well, like, the, the engine is still there, I think, but I just noticed the... You know, we talk about the method paying off. This is like when the when the method like rebounds upon me and it's like I just see too much of uh, other stuff in this novel 
that has irritated me about King in the past. Uh, like just uh, uh, th- there's some like I said, we'll get into it. Uh, but like the entire last, I don't know, 50, 70 pages of this are basically just another like little novel about something almost entirely different. And it's like, what? It's not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to get into that. It's not even another novel. It's like, oh, shit, I'm Stephen King. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, okay, that's, okay. 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 That's actually. Let me do all the stuff that I do. Uh-huh. That's actually a good way of putting it. I didn't I didn't necessarily want to go there. But now that you have. Right. It is like. He wrote this novel as um, a way to stretch, right? He's doing just, he's just doing stuff he hasn't done before, right? Really digging down into a single character's head. That character is a woman. She's had some awful stuff happen to her, and he's trying to take those uh, experiences and representations of them seriously. And then at the end, he's like, well, I'm Stephen King, oops! And then he has to do this whole other thing that it, that we'll talk about but <laughs> yeah i mean it, it does feel there's a clean into the book right she gets uh-huh. out spoilers she gets out there's a clean into it and then he you're right spends another 70 pages just kind of like doing a loop the loop you know what i mean he's doing donuts yeah. in the front yard and those donuts are like and i'm steve <laughs> i'm Stephen gang wow Woo, serial killers ah! and, and it Right, and it just turns into like, and it's not just like, oh, he's doing whatever. It's that he, it's like, I'm Stephen King. I've got to get the things I write about in here, and so it's it's like this parade of Stephen King shit that like doesn't belong in the book. Yeah. Like she becomes a writer <laughs> yes. and begins writing an in the you know a diegetic novel that we read or a story. It's not a novel, I guess. It's a like a nonfiction memoir kind of thing, and it's like, what is why? Like, this actively makes the book worse. You could just cut mm-hmm. it. Quit. <sighs> Quit, Steve. Quit while you're ahead. <laughs> uh, so now that we're now that we're here, I guess, uh, uh, you want to, like, actually summarize this thing for us, Cameron? It's yours this time. <sighs> sure. Jesse is a friend. <laughs> uh, no. <clears throat> five cents summary. Five cents summary is where we summarize the novel in five senses. I'm not reading from a Wikipedia page or anything pre-done. I have not even thought about it because I thought this was Michael's month <laughs> because I forgot. Uh, and we just summarize the novel. So first sentence, here we go. Jesse has a horny husband named Gerald, comma, and he's a little bit of a freak. Open parentheses. He's got them handcuffs. Close parentheses, period. Gerald handcuffs Jesse to a bed and then gets kicked in the dick to death. (laughs) Period. Jesse has many different hallucinations after that point, including meeting... The Space Cowboy, and also her friend who she doesn't hang out with anymore, all of whom are mental projections or also maybe not mental projections, period. After experiencing lots of wild shit, open parentheses, including a terrible story about what happened to her as a child, close parentheses, comma, Jesse escapes by ripping her hand apart, and then a whole different novel happens that explains that the space cowboy was real the whole time. Period. Mm-hmm. There's also a dog there for most of the novel, but he goes away. Period. <laughs> okay, yeah, there we go. 
that's yep, it. That's it. That's that's this book beginning to end. Uh, it could be about a hundred or a hundred and fifty pages shorter. I think the whole novel could be twenty two pages. Lot <laughs> like like I you're you're being charitable and cutting. I'm saying you cut the whole thing, start from scratch. Mm. Uh, but I mean, it's a yes, it is overlong. And I actually looked at you know it's on my shelf near with my other Stephen King books. And I thought, oh yeah, we're going into a little thin one. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's a little beep boop, little robot book. Go zip in, zip out. Chat GPT, write this uh-huh. thing. Three hundred thirty-two pages. I mean, it's, 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 it's. I mean, it's not as long as Needful Things, but I enjoyed reading Needful Things more. Really? Wow. Um, well, yeah, but well, just because, like, in this, after you get the setup and you get the idea that these characters are all in Jesse's head, because that's what's up. She's chained to the bed, or you know, uh, handcuffs, handcuffed to the bed, and it's all these characters in her head. There's like Goody Proctor in there. Mm-hmm. And there's like her friend from college, and then there's Gerald himself sometimes, and then there's her talking to her. There's all these different. They're characters. the UFO voices. They're like the voices that don't have any particular like personality associated with them, and they just get called UFOs. Right, and so that's like a, uh, you know, it's it's like a common Stephen King thing, and this is him like really experimenting with it. Like he has all these we've talked about it before these like internal characters, and sometimes like intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And historically, in Stephen King, this is the method paying off, right? The, the catchphrase of the show. Historically, that could be explained within his kind of science fiction books as TK, right? Mm-hmm. Or telepathy or something like that. I guess it's not TK, it's telepathy. Uh, and now it's just like the bourgeois mind gone mad. You know what I mean? It's the upper middle class's mind racing as it is trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, escape from the scenario. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, yeah, so, you know, it's it, that that's what the book is, you know, period. It's just a bunch of different, it's, it's almost like a stage play, you know, where if you listen to the, um, the what do you call it, um, bonus episode, mm-hmm. you know, that is, uh, it's in the bonus feed right now. You can go check it out. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to get access to that bonus feed if you don't already, just for $5 a month. So it's easy to do. Um, you know, it's a couple, uh, the, the price less than a latte these days. Yes. But, uh, but but we talk about that, right? Like in the adaptation, that's a move. Um, you know, Mike Flanagan's adaptation move is to like actually kind of really stage play this thing up, and you can see how you can how you could get there from here. Um, but but yeah, other you know, other than that, it's just like a lot of different scenes. You know, these voices provide us with different scenes and different perspectives on the world. I, yeah, I think that I, I, eventually I was like, I get mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? Like, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to stretch. There's nowhere to to take this other than just giving us more cruelty piled on cruelty because awful shit happens to Jesse. Period. Yeah. Like she she is she's a professional victim, and like people use that term, uh, you know, dismissively in terms of like that's a, a word that gets used for people uh who like present themselves that way, and that's not what I mean. She's a professional victim in the sense that, I mean, literally her entire life is geared toward her uh, being violated and violence done against her. And that is her only character trait. Uh, her entire life from birth to the end of this novel is an excuse to have bad things happen to a person. Mm-hmm. It is almost parodic in that way. Yes. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and part of the novel is also about her kind of coming to understand this. Like, I get your point, right? I, I do think they're yeah, right. Uh, no, no, you're right. Like, it's written toward that, and you're right. The the culmination of the book is her recognition of that and breaking out of it. Like, you're, you were correct. Right, right. Like, uh, uh, it does, like, raise the question, do you just, like, how well does the novel kind of execute her coming to realize uh, what has happened? Because, like, just to, just right, to get right. right to it, right, the, the big kind of character-specific epiphany that happens here, right, the, the breakthrough that Jesse has while she's handcuffed to the bed uh and uh, they're at their vacation house right up in up in maine up on uh, a lake and they're they they did it sort of spur of the moment so no one really knows that Mm -hmm. they're there and you know just kind of uh uh it's cujo like in that all of these tiny little things came together to make it plausible that a person could be trapped alone in a location for whoever knows how long um right and like and just to, to say this too uh, high concept. If you're thinking like, what's the tone of this book? It is, uh, what if Cujo met? Misery? Yes, uh huh, exactly. Like that. That's the you know. In case people haven't read the book in the summer, you didn't do enough for him. That's the the vibe mm-hmm. here. Uh, it, funny enough, uh, in one uh, interview I did find, um, uh, King was talking about uh, this in relation to to misery. Because uh, the thing about misery is that it's a guy he's stuck in a bed and there are some other characters who come in and out and he actually talks to them. Uh, and this is like even more stripped down because it's just Jessie stuck on her bed, like thinking to herself and, and having dialogues with all these voices in her head and flashing back into her past and everything. Uh, really experimental in that way. Uh, he said uh, that he he was going to this was going to be this. This was the second movement of an unofficial trilogy and the third book was just going to be called Sofa. And it would just be about a sofa sitting in a room. <laughs> I, I mean, th- this is the astonishing thing to me about Stephen King. But st- he, he'll still get me every time, which is that he has an astonishing amount of clarity about his own work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And a what has to be willful ignorance about it in other places, <laughs> right? Like, if he can see this, then how can he not see, like, structural narrative misogyny? Yeah. Right. Like, how how does he how do you not see it, Steve? But maybe he just doesn't yeah. care. Or maybe he thinks I'm wrong, which is fine. We'll talk about that yeah. in a bit. I, I don't want to get too ahead. But you're right. Like to kind of bring it back to what you were saying, everything I just complained about is on mm-hmm. purpose. Like he didn't step into that on accident. Right. It is a book that is about a woman who recognizes that she is experiencing, uh, you know, in the language of the time. Right. Um, uh, uh, interlocking oppressions. Mm-hmm. Right. That. Her experience in uh, as a child and being powerless in relationship to sexual abuse, yes. right, which is what happens to her as a child, that is related to the misogyny she experiences later and that there are these kind of um, uh, uh, patriarchal characters, right? You, you know, these men in her life who who dominate and violate, and that is not really because of her. That is because of what was done to her that kind of set her up. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she is... Um, uh, kicked from one place to the other, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, the act of reading the book is reading about that, and reading about it, I'm just going to be frank, salaciously. Yeah. It's a salacious and exploitative novel around these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it feels Bachmanian to me, right? Like, it is that kind of exploitation tone taken to a very serious and real-world issue um, that doesn't end in anything spectacular e- either in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, road work fizzles out because of this like you know come and take it shit Mm -hmm. right that is like pure exploitation media this ends in like 
gritty realism that like actually makes me feel very gross about the rest of the stuff that happens in the book. And that's not a call for censorship. That's not a saying Stephen King shouldn't have wrote it. That's not saying that this is impossible to pull off. But as you were saying other earlier, Michael, it's an experimental novel of him stretching and trying to do something. And I just think he fails at it. You know, I, I respect the attempt, I guess, but uh, I don't think he sinks the shot mm-hmm. of what he's trying to do. But sorry, I feel like I've been talking about it for a minute. Oh, no, it, it's fine. Uh, uh, w- you said that sometimes it feels like almost parodic. And what I was going to do to like lay that out uh, is explain mm-hmm. how how this does feel like in in setup, right? A pure exploitation film. So we have right. this woman who is handcuffed to the bed by her husband for uh, a little bit of a sexual game. Uh, her husband, Gerald, is a jerk. He's he's a piece of crap. He I, I wasn't joking when I said that. uh, uh I don't even, I can't remember how I phrased the comparison, but he's like, he's the main character of Thinner, right? He's another version of Billy Halleck. Right, right. Um, but without the stuff that makes Billy Halleck think, like, maybe my life is wrong, right? Namely, like, the supernatural vengeance stuff. Um, right. His uh, curse for murder. Yes, something. right. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? That doesn't make him think that. It's actually when he unleashes the power of, of Italian-American violence <laughs> that he begins yeah. to, to believe that maybe he's made an error. But, but yeah, continue. Right, Sorry. so he's, he's basically the same character. He's kind of a high-powered lawyer, middle age, uh, and he uh, he is... Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're both middle-aged, like the sex life is kind of in a slump, um, and he's gotten really excited lately because he's brought these handcuffs into the bedroom and they're playing these bondage games. Um, mm-hmm. And he they, they go up to the lake to have like their little spontaneous spur of the moment fling. And uh, he uh, uh, basically prepares to rape her uh, as after he's already handcuffed her to the bed because she. Uh, has a you know she's uh, uh, going along with it and then she's like not in the mood and she tries to get him to undo the handcuffs and he sort of pretends that he doesn't understand. Uh, right, and I want to play. I want to plant a flag yeah. right there to come back to later, but th- that's the best writing in the entire book. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, like like that that scenes. All right, we'll we'll come back to that and I'll I'll trace how this escalates then. So mm-hmm. as he's crawling over her, she kicks him in the crotch. Uh, kicks him in the nuts. And Please, she kicks him in. The, yeah. No, later she says she kicks him in the yeah. nuts. In that scene, it says she kicks him in his erect penis. Mm-hmm. He is kicked in the dick to uh-huh. death. Well, and that's <laughs> it's it's very good to me. Yeah. So uh, she does that, and he's you know a uh, uh, an out of shape middle aged lawyer, so he has a heart attack. Uh, he falls down dead, and you know that's that's the basic scene, right? This is the sort of thing that you would you would you can hear this when we talk about it as being exploitative, right? Or exploitation film. You can see this as the headline on the um, the tabloid in the supermarket checkout mm-hmm. or whatever. Or I guess now it's uh, something that shows up on some weird fringe website. Uh, uh, you know, woman left uh, handcuffed to bed for twenty eight hours after kinky sex game gone awry, whatever. Uh, so that would be enough. But no, it so happens that when they were getting into the lake house, they were so in a hurry that they left the back door, the front door or whatever, not quite closed. She can hear it. She's like lying there handcuffed in the bed. And she can hear the, the door like banging in the wind. Oh, man, how mm-hmm. annoying. And then a dog, a stray dog comes in because no, not you know. any stray dog, Michael. 
Prince the Prince dog. the dog, who we get uh, uh, two or three point of view chapters with. Uh, so we know. Yeah, him. Prince is just living his life in this book. It's yeah. Great. So we get like his entire life story, like how he was adopted by another family on the lake. They were summer people. Uh, the father didn't want to. Uh, keep the dog and so like abandoned it uh, when they went back to the city for the the rest of the year all this stuff um so prince is pretty hungry and and it's like pure exploitation right it's just it's disney style mm-hmm. exploitation yes. right like it's it's homeward bound exploitation. yes what if homeward bound uh, had all three of those animals like coming into jesse's bedroom and eating gerald <laughs> Right. And and like you get these things and it's like it's the same thing that happens in, with Cujo. Right. We, we have to remember he was a good mm-hmm. boy. Right. Like he was a good dog. Right. Uh, and that's the thing with Prince. Right. Like it's such a heartstrings like, you know, um, like Pat thing. Gotta be honest, it works though. It makes you feel bad. It makes you feel bad for Prince. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, oh, man, what an awful day. Right. She's stuck here at the lake handcuffed to the bed husband dead this dog can come in and out as it pleases and it's eating her husband and then and this is like such a oh this is like piece de resistance stuff right that night uh she's lying in bed in the dark and she looks up in the corner and it looks like there's a man standing there and in the morning it is unclear if that man was real or not except there's a muddy footprint boom 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 so in a way right i think that as a setup you say the high concept like this is a real master class in like taking a situation and just like having uh the horrible stuff like stack and stack and stack yeah i know this could be as good as cujo like in terms of um setup in terms of what it is and i actually thought 50 pages in i thought we were in for a cujo mm-hmm. i thought we were in for a book that I would have thought before it was like a middle of the road book. I didn't have really any strong impressions about it and not a strong amount of memory other than like some specific stuff. Uh, you know, and and yeah, 70 pages in, you could be like, hey, maybe we're maybe we're in for it. You know, like maybe this is going to be a, a kind of a strong, deep psychological dive into like a terrible situation. And we get to see her figure a bunch of stuff out. And it's not. Yeah, yeah it takes a. A long time for kind of all the pieces to get put in place. She, We establish the various voices in her head. There's the good wife who is kind of um, uh, her internalized misogyny, essentially, right? The the voice that's like saying, oh, this never would have happened if you had just like gone along with it. Uh, you you should have done like, you know, you're, you're always speaking up too much. You should be quieter and that sort of thing. And then there's the voice. Uh, Ruth Neary is what she calls it. But it's the the voice of her college roommate who was kind of a lemon, uh, a, a women's lib person. Uh, a lemon's lib. <laughs> yeah. That's how you, you uh, Mr. Mixipitalic, whatever. That's how you unsummon. <laughs> <Yeah>. feminism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get them to say lemon's whip. Poof. Um. <laughs> ah, <boom>. Zoom. <laughs> You got me again, misogynist. Woo! <laughs> uh, anyway, right? She she was kind of uh, a feminist, right? Um, and uh, at one point, took Jesse to like a. It, it, it's an odd setup. It's like a women's group therapy session, essentially, uh, where women start sharing experiences of having been uh, abused and exploited in in various ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a consciousness yeah. raising. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Jesse has a moment where she almost tells them something that happened when she was a kid. 
uh, and Ruth really locks on to it, but Jesse gets really upset about remembering this thing that she's uh, very clearly, like, repressed. And so she mm-hmm. stops speaking, or she she speaks to Ruth, right? But she, like, moves out of their dorm room, finds another place to live, and they become uh, much more casual friends from that point forward. And uh, it's because Ruth was kind of pushing her, being like, Jesse, like, what were you going to say? Like, what what happened? Um, and uh, so then the, the kind of next move after all of these voices are established is Jesse thinking back to her childhood and her relationship with her father, uh, who molested her uh, at the family lake house uh, in 1963 during a total solar eclipse that um, actually happened. Historically, it did happen. Um, that sets us up for some of the weirder, more mystical stuff that connects us to Dolores Claiborne. Uh, but that's when that happened. And then uh, Jesse kind of deals with this revelation and then uh, with the, the the thing that keeps showing up in the corner that she's not sure if it's real or not and keeps trying to tell herself it's not real. Uh, she knows that something's bad is going to happen to her soon and then she sets about her kind of escape. And I think we can like maybe put a pin in that uh, because the escape is kind of a, a whole sequence that we can work through. Uh, let's go back to what you said earlier about the beginning of this with Gerald and Jesse being some of the best writing. Yeah, specifically that scene, right? So there's the scene that happens where, you know, Gerald has her handcuffed to the bed because exactly as you say, right, like up until this point, it's been like scarves and blah, 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 you know, whatever, right? Like this is the, uh, you know, there's something fascinating that I don't think we're, I'm not historically equipped enough to like talk through. I, I I, I predict you're not either, right? But there's something going on here, right, which is like, in this moment of the early nineties, the that like light bondage play for like the middle America set, right, is like exciting, mm-hmm. you know, and going on. I mean, look, it's like the, this happens again later with the uh what's the the I've got such things to show you. No, no wait, that's <laughs> yeah. Hellraiser. The other one. You know what I'm talking about? Robert Pattinson. But what? Oh yeah, uh not Robert Pattinson. You, know you mean fifty shades of gray? Yeah, is that not Robert Pattinson? Well, it. Oh, that's what he's in Twilight. He's the right, original right. One. It's it's like a weird simulacrum of him. <laughs> right, right. Wait, what's that called? Fifty Shades I, of Grey. I'm blanking on. Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, you know, like the same conversation happened again. Twenty, you know, like that gum, that that flavor of gum I like was coming back in right. style. Right, like it's happening again. Um, but so I, I, it feels like there's something in the water is what I'm saying in that moment of time. This feels like very of the moment in the nineties, but I don't know enough about Mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, of like what middle America thinks of light bondage play in 1991 (laughs) and to 1992 to like really key into it. But so what happens there is like, this is the first time they're using handcuffs. That's why I'm working. I think it's like the second, just technically. Oh, yeah, is it's it? the second. I thought this was the first. I think it's the second because it comes up um, that uh, they I think it comes up that they used them once before and he was super into it. And she also has a, you know, one of the voices in her head is like, you know, they make special handcuffs for this sort of thing that have like right. security latches on them just in case something exactly like this happens. And isn't it interesting that Gerald did not get those, but got actual real handcuffs that do not have the safety release on them. Like, what do you make of that? Jesse? Right. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and you got him from a cop, and like there's a whole story about yeah. it. Uh, there's not a single thing we're going to talk about that is not over-explained in this novel. We're not going to get into it, but there's not a single glass of water, a single handcuff, <laughs> a single shoe that does not explain where it came from and how it got there and where it went. It's actually astonishing. Uh, it, you know, it's almost like experimental literature in that <laughs> yeah. way, right? Like, could you explain everything that in a room in its entire history, past and future? But anyway, that's all to say. She's there, and they're like, kind of, you know, having sex, starting it up, you know, whatever. They're getting ready to, to, uh, uh, you know, the whole operation, and uh. Anyway, things go bad, right? He's role playing essentially a rape fantasy, right? Like, yeah, that's the deal, and uh, and she's like not into it. Like, there's a moment where she's just, you know, he's he's uh, being aggressive in a way that she doesn't like, and there and like that's interesting or whatever, but that's just novel kind of stuff. But the thing that is so well done here is the the dual recognition when he realizes or decides it's not a realization. He knows she's not into it, and he is making a decision to act as if she is just playing into the rape fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's whatever. Uh, like, uh, Gerald is a bad person. Like, that's established. We know that. We get a lot of backstory around it. He's a villainous character. He is the, when we're talking about Simulacra, he is her father over again. You know, like, mm-hmm. that's made explicit. Okay. But the thing that takes this from, like, exploitation writing to, I think, good writing, like a a lesson to learn, even though it's in a scene that is very uh, difficult, traumatizing, hard to recycle into something else. It's hard to figure out how to learn this lesson somewhere else. But Stephen King does such a good job here of writing her recognition of his decision. Mm -hmm. Her seeing that and then the kind of calculation she goes through. And then she's like, well, look, I could just, like, go through with it. Like how many times have I had sex with this man who I didn't want to have sex with? Right. Which is like a real human thing, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that is an actual human emotion that is expressed and done in real life. Right. Like people have sex with people. They don't want to have sex with all the time. Right. That, that is a human phenomenon. And so like, she has this like internal discussion with herself. Should, should I do that? And it's not importantly, it is not charactered, right? It's not mm-hmm. whatever that goody proctor character is or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's not these two figures. It's just her talking and, you know, kind of thinking through the thing. And it's so subjectivated, so close, so focalized, right? We really understand her as a person very clearly in that moment. And then she does a thing like we all want her to do, which is she kicks him in the dick as hard as possible and he dies, right? Like, like <laughs> you can't wish for a better outcome than that in, in terms of like an exploitation thing, right? Like exploitation work works because we see a horrifying thing represented and then some fucked up shit happens and like someone gets killed with a shotgun right like that's what make or like the bad prison warden warden gets murdered right or mm-hmm. uh you know the 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 white business owner who's a huge asshole uh gets got at the end right like that's the thrill of exploitation is like uh the plantation blows up you know what i mean like that's mm-hmm. the stuff mm-hmm. that makes it go it, there's this libidinal affective force to it and this is a place where it happens right it's like if you could you know uh if you could bottle exploitation this is it the grimy the dirty going for the gross out he's an evil rapist and then he fucking gets what he deserves right like that's that's good shit 
Mm-hmm. And then the book keeps going. <laughs> and you're like, I was like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I got to read 300 more pages of this. Um, but mm-hmm. but I just think it's just so well done. It's It might be the best the guy's ever done it, just to be honest, in terms of like selling us on the emotional stakes of a character um, mm-hmm. and paying it off and making it happen. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I thought that scene was really well done, too. I thought it was extremely effective. And so it's it is sad that the rest of the novel around it is basically pretty flabby. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's just it's a lot of again, they're, they're, you know, the, the history and life and times of every bedsheet uh, dog and and dead man around. Right. Like they're all in here. Hey, I hope mm-hmm. you're curious to find out about where all the ears came from. Does we do? Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. And so that's that. And then uh, uh, the other kind of main thing then is like Jesse remembering everything that happened with her father. And that's kind of a, a, a sub story or a, yeah, I mean, it is a subplot, but it is also a thing that like, w- when you look at this novel, you could think about that being like cut out and presented as its own, like little short story or something. Uh, if this were an entirely different kind of project. Right. And this is where um, I think the exploitation, like, you know, the Bachmanian impulse toward exploitation. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. earlier you referenced, uh, the tabloids, right? And like, remember the, you know, we've read this in several Stephen King interviews from the eighties, right? Like he, he looks to what Americans are pre- presumably concerned about. And then he makes stories about them. He, he, that's part of the process, right? Like focusing in and child sexual abuse is a, a key focus, right? Like that, that's something mm-hmm. that is coming into the media on its own. And I think that much like the current period, and I think I talked about this in the library policeman episode too, right? Or no, I think you did actually, sorry. Um, but uh, I think we just talked about it afterward too, is that there's this uh, alignment with queerness around it too, a lot of the time in this literature. And that doesn't happen here, but um, you know, the early 90s panic around child abuse is also weirdly historically attached to um, panic around uh, LGBTQ folks being around kids, too. Like these two things in a media narrative are tied to one another. And that's not happening here. But it is you know, for me, it's hard to think about this kind of, of uh, literature without thinking about that broader historical context. And then also, of course, revelations around the Catholic Church. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I get you there. And I think one of the things that Steve tries to do here to lever that out of the picture a little bit, um, he does this. And I'm I'm paralleling here a like later move that we'll talk about when we get to uh, Jubair. Right. Uh, But uh, uh, I think one of the ways he tries to sort of subvert the typical narrative that is happening, you know, contemporary to him in this moment uh, is make it very specific and pointed that like Jesse's dad was a successful upper middle class businessman, right? Like dyed in the wool, a Republican kind of guy. And this is a thing that she like, this is one of the things that reminds uh, or that, one of the aspects of Gerald that reminds her of her father, right? We, we are told a couple of times very pointedly that Gerald and Jesse met at a Republican mixer on the night that uh, Reagan was elected, I think. Yeah, yes, I think so. Right. Uh, so there's a, a, Steve, I think, is doing something by trying to, uh, you know, position the scene of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, in the upper echelons of like middle class white America, right mm-hmm. at their lake yeah. house, right? I, yeah, by making it her father too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it 
distances it from what happens in the library policeman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, which he's got to be writing in a similar time, right? Like, uh, or like he back to written, back, right? He would have written it before this because, uh, I know that we, we already said that needful things mm-hmm. was the first, uh, sober novel. Mm-hmm. This was written in 91. Uh, that's oh, okay. the date that he gives it. So, uh, if you haven't read a Stephen King novel, one of the things that he does particularly, um, in sort of like the eighties books onward is that the very end, he will put the date, uh, of when he finished one of the drafts. This is the thing that I don't know about. I don't know if that's like the date he finished the first draft, the date he finished edits or what, and then like the location where he finished and or wrote uh, mm-hmm. the majority of the manuscript. I think so the end of Gerald- I think this has got to be the, the kind of publication draft because in other books he does the beginning and the end dates, right? So I think it mm-hmm. has the beginning. This only has the end date. So I think that must be final edit because this came out in May of the next year. So this has to be the final edit. Yeah. Yeah. So November 16th, 1991, uh, Bangor, Maine. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what we get there. And the library policeman would have been a couple years earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, because of publication and timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, I, you know, I there, that patrilineal thing, too, right? Like the the family relation makes this all happen. And, you know, like. I'm a big fan of exploitation. Like, I think that exploitation can work really well. I think that's, like, its own media form. I cannot say I enjoyed reading this section about child sexual abuse written through the exploitation format. Um, yeah. I've read a lot of things in my life and a lot of things that are, like, purposefully outre or... or uh, apologies to the French. Uh <laughs> And uh, in disturbing and, you know, violent, right? You know, I've, I've, I've read mm-hmm. my Bataille and my um, American Psycho, right? And this is right up there with it. And, um, like, I don't know if the payoff in terms of, like, the narrative location that we go is is worth my having to sit through it. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think... I'm, I hate this this language, but I do think it's appropriate here. I don't think that this novel earns it's kind of exploitation style around that issue with what it actually gives us at the end, which is a fairly pat, um, didn't you know we could all make it through it kind of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the 1960, uh, the 1960s plot line is, uh, Jesse remembers, uh, when, her family was at the lake during the it was in the run up to the eclipse. It was going to be a big event. Everyone was extremely excited about this. Um, the totality mm. uh, is only tracking through Maine. Uh, that is to say the the spot where it basically becomes nighttime. Obviously, the eclipse is uh, visible from various other places. Um, and her family wants to go to Mount Washington, which is in New Hampshire. Uh, they want to go see it there. Uh, and Jesse um ends up uh saying that she doesn't want to go and then she and her father stay behind at the lake house and he's like oh well we'll make a day of it and the uh jesse's father and mother are already arguing uh the mother says explicitly to him during an argument that jesse overhears like sometimes it's more like she's your girlfriend than a daughter or something along those lines um and while he's alone with her uh he uh you know, sort of uh, gets her to, like, hang out with him on, like, their back deck, uh, has all of these things set up so they can view the eclipse. And then 
during the eclipse, like, uh, uh, molests her and she realizes what is happening. Um, he, he masturbates on her and uh, she is extremely upset. And then he uh, manipulates her into promising to never tell anyone uh, in the way that. Uh, if you've ever heard any stories of abuse like this is very familiar uh, that, uh, uh, you know, if 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 she were to tell the consequences would be so bad for both of them that it's just better if she doesn't tell and it was a mistake and uh, right. uh, things like that. He essentially um, concocts a conversation in which the idea not to tell comes from her yes. rather, rather than from him. Right. He he sort of goes over like all of the he's like, oh, I think I ought to tell someone here are all the bad things that are going to happen. And then she says, no, don't tell anyone. Um, So. Right. Which is deeply uh, traumatic, guilt inducing. And she then carries that for the rest of her life. Yes. Uh, one other thing happens during the scene, uh, which is that uh, she has a vision of a woman uh who she does not know uh in a uh blueberry patch looking into a well like a, a the well has been covered by a, a wooden cover and it's been broken and the woman is gazing down into the well and she knows that that woman has pushed a man into the well or there is a man in the well and it becomes very unclear whether or not the man is like her father or something like her father. She, she has a, uh, uh, you know, kind of like these psychic intensities of um, some sense of shared experience. And she knows uh, in her heart of hearts that this woman is also in the path of the totality of the eclipse. Mm. Uh, you know, spoilers like this is Dolores Claiborne. This is a right. scene from Dolores Claiborne. And we're going to figure out the context for all of that stuff. Uh, in that book. Um, but as it functions here, it kind of like plugs Jesse into this larger mystical system of like understanding that there are other women who are suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't do much for her as, as a child, as, as we've already covered, like her father manipulates her into uh, never telling anyone. She represses the memory, mm -hmm. uh, and it stays with her in, uh, her entire life. Uh, up until this point where she's handcuffed to the bed and she has the, the Ruth Neary voice in her head saying like, hey, is it is not everything going on with you right now handcuffed to this bed in some way a consequence of what your father did to you? Right. Uh, yes. And, you know, it really isn't that background scene, right? That that what did you say? 1963. Uh, I think it's 63. Yeah, 63. Uh, because it's mentioned it's a, a like a yeah. month before the Kennedy assassination right. or something. I, I did note that in the book. I was like, oh, yeah, that is explicitly say Andy, get, get it in the chart. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Andy in the discord is keeping a chart of all uh, Kennedy assassination mentions. It is mentioned by name. Um, but uh, but but, you know, it's it, it's explicitly in that around the arguments with her mother. That I was just like, fuck, we're all the way, we're back with Susan Norton, right? Is, oh, wait, mm. is that her name? From, from Salem's Lot? I don't know why I always think that's not her name. I get Nor <laughs> I get Susan Norton and I think, wait, Norton is in, he's the weed eater in the Dark Tower. Is that, you know what I mean? Like I get in my own head about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, right, his name was Norton, is that true? His name is just Nort, like oh, Kingdom just Hearts. Nort. Okay. <laughs> that's right, when you get on the devil weed, you get Norted. <laughs> I'm out here reading Steve getting norted as all hell. Uh, but, but you, right. So, I mean, but we're back there, right? Like 
A woman's relationship with her mother is conflictual and all determining. And is in fact the 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 fact that, that she does not have a good relationship with her mother is the thing that makes this all possible. Mm-hmm. Like it is a back back one step. You know, I think I think people get concerned, confused, or or unhappy somewhere in that cluster of things, right? When we start talking about this stuff, right? I am not calling Stephen King the man who exists in the universe who walks around and serves the beam and whatnot. I'm not calling Stephen King a misogynist, right? I'm saying that that what I'm about to say, what I'm saying in this very moment, is that Stephen King's narrative framework, the thing, the assumptions he makes sometimes about human life and how it works out, carries real-world political ideas within it, right? It's like he's he's constructed a little universe here that has political decisions that are made about it, right? And by political decisions, I mean decisions that are, that are made about how things run into other things, right? How, how struggles occur and function or whatever. And within Stephen King's body of work, as we have seen, there is a near metaphysical reality to the fact that women have bad relationships with their mother. And that phenomena, you know, that it's con- contested, uh, deeply strange, jealous in some ways. I mean, this is that you know that the line you said about the, the the mother. You know, sometimes she's your girlfriend. You know, Michael. Mm-hmm. That that's it's being text made here, right? That this kind of strange, ambiguous jealousy and contest between women in the family structure, the heteropatriarchal family structure, right? Mm-hmm. That creates a situation. It, it's the only way that this kind of sexual abuse could occur in the novel as it is presented is if mm-hmm. you take for granted that these women have this relationship. If she had mm-hmm. any kind of positive relationship with her mother, she would have been able to to say something about it, right? Um, yeah. And and that wouldn't matter so much if this were like the only book by Stephen King I'd ever read, but the fact that it keeps showing up, right? This kind of structural reality that he presents time and time again about women and their mothers, um, I it, it puts some kind of limits on what he can do with women as characters you know he mm-hmm. he just can't go very far um and it makes the places in like pet cemetery where at least it's a complicated family relationship those feel much more real and played out than this kind of very thin um you know bad mom's relationship or worse yet no mom's relationship the the thing that i really thought about reading all of these scenes were the almost but it doesn't happen stuff in it if you remember that that mm, we talked about yeah um, it's the same setup almost, right? Except yeah. uh, her dad, Bev's dad, right? Like never goes through with it, but he's thinking about it pretty consistently, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You know, yeah. you've got to be your mother now and all that stuff. If you if you remember, yeah. Um, I so I I get you there. I understand, and I also think there is a bit here where Steve is kind of seeing through that, or at least he's starting to, mm-hmm. uh, because there is a moment later on in the novel where Jesse is, you know, thinking, talking to herself, uh, where she realizes like, oh, like if you had told your mother, like she would have like killed him. Right. Like she absolutely would have been on your side. Like right. he was, it was wrong for him to do what he did to kind of play off that animosity between you. And then she has, and it, not a lot of time is spent on this, right? But she does have some uh, moment of realization. I recall where she's like, "If that's what he did to you, like in your head, imagine like what being married to him for real must have been like for your mother." Because right. she has right. all of these memories of her mother being kind of emotionally volatile and like doing weird things that didn't make sense. Like there's the one that sticks with me because it feels so like 
sharply drawn is like uh, one day her mother when she was like in I think she was like a teenager or something right she's like 15 her mother uh, comes into the bedroom and throws a pair of high heels at her says nothing and turns around and walks out right right and like that's the relationship that she has with her mother of her mother being like weird and volatile in all these ways that don't make sense and she starts to realize like oh do you think like maybe your dad had something to do with that yeah, um, yeah, I think I a hundred percent agree. Like it, it seems like he can see the other side. Um, mm-hmm. And and you're right. Like Susan Norton's one dimensional, right? This is this is like a three dimensional relationship between these two people. Um, right. That but that emanates from the same place, right? Um, right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I think you're right. I think that like th- there is a definite stretching here that is not in any of the other places. And and look if. If if we could pare this novel down to basically all we've talked about right now, it, it'd be really good, I think. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, it'd still be difficult to read and it would still be, um, you know, kind of first principle. If you didn't want to read about this kind of stuff, there would be nothing for you here because this really is the story of a woman who was sexually abused and then sexually abused again and then working through the, the kind of gap between the two. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing that we have not talked about because it's almost untalkable. Right. Unless you want to say more about mm-hmm. this stuff, but is that all these voices, right? Like that you, yeah. I mean, you laid them out for us earlier, but it's impossible to impress on someone how overwhelming and oppressive these voices are in terms uh-huh. of like reading them in the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think I have anything more to say because like we, everything that has happened in this book up until the point where we've discussed talks very cleanly right yeah i can i can summarize it really neat for you right but how we get there is through jesse kind of like waking up falling back asleep like uh you know the aches and pains in her arms like thinking of thinking about the uh <laughs> she uh, luckily she took like a biblical history course in college or something so she knows uh the type of physical pain that one would undergo over a, a prolonged period of being crucified and so uh we get her kind of like jumping forward in her mind to all of the ways that your uh, muscles start seizing up and so on um all of that's happening and then like the voices are talking and talking and talking and sort of uh, uh, getting her to dig deeper and deeper into her past. Uh, and it's all very circuitous and, and, and roundabout. Um, there's also a bit in there where she, you know, uh, she gets like a little moment of um, uh, uh, like can do right? Uh, where she figures out that uh, Gerald left a glass of water on the shelf that is over her head. Uh, she can get it. She can reach up far enough to grab that. Uh oh, she she can't actually bring it to her mouth to drink. That's a problem. But then uh, she also finds that there's like a a, a, a mailer card up there, like a circular card uh, for the kids listening who uh, don't know what magazines are. Back in the day, <laughs> I still get magazines um, in the mail. I get Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. I got a new issue the other day. Uh, I was reading yeah. an interview with Ice Spice. I just thought it was really interesting that in the uh, the film ad- adaptation, which, by the way, uh, you can uh, hear us talk about if you go to patreon.com slash range touch. If you haven't uh, supported us over there already, you can get all of our bonus episodes, including the one on 2017's Gerald's Game adaptation by Mac Flan- or Mike Flanagan, mm-hmm. uh, which we are discussing with Gita Jackson uh, this month. Uh, they were so kind to drop by and join us and talk through that. Um, in that film, uh, this gets replaced uh, with a uh, 
it's the tag from her like slip that she's wearing. Like she's just bought like a new slip and she like pulls the tag off in like the first scene of the movie and like lays it on the shelf uh, because uh, we have moved by 2017 beyond a point where it was believable that you would just have like a little cardboard uh, subscription uh, things or like, you know, it's like a, a tag board or something subscription uh, things that fell out of all your magazines and were always like lying all over everywhere. But she finds one of those and she makes it into a straw and then she can drink the water. Hooray, hooray. And then, uh, you know, more passing out, more voices, more memories and, and, and that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, and then. Uh, she realizes she's got to escape because that thing that keeps showing up in the corner, uh, she she has a moment where she realizes, like, uh, it doesn't matter whether or not that thing is real because it's a it's a guy. He does not look right. There's something spooky and strange about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first night she sees him, he, like, lifts up a big wicker basket and opens it up and shows the inside to her. And it's filled with jewelry and bones. Mm-hmm. And he just, like, runs his hand through it. And she can hear all the clicking and clacking, which I, uh, you know, I really hate where all of this ends up. But as an image, I love this. Yeah, it's like, a Slender this Man. Is so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like if the Slender Man did a little bit more. But, like, conceptually, right? It's like there's a, there's a there's a big tall guy and he's scary and he's over there and he has like no goals you know what i mean he's just like <laughs> right being like ooh, look at my click and clack collection Ooh, yeah it's scary <laughs> it's good and it like really kind of comes out of nowhere in the book in the terms of like she's just talking to all these characters she's talking to herself as a child she's talking to pumpkin this little character she's talking to nora she's mm-hmm. her like therapist is in, is in there and stuff oh, yeah mm-hmm. she's like doing all that and then then there's this guy, right? It's really scary. It like works. It's a you know, it's a good little horror stinger there. Um, yeah, for for the thing. Yeah, and it's uh, uh uh you know, she's like is that real? Did I actually see him? You mentioned there's like this smudged footprint and she comes up with all these excuses about why it might not be there and then she notices beside the footprint there's a um an earring and she's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, that's just one of my earrings. I just dropped it." And she's like, "No." That's a pearl earring, and your pearl earrings are back in the Portland house. You didn't bring them up here. Uh, but she eventually settles on this. Uh, she, she settles on the the understanding that it does not matter whether or not that thing I keep seeing in the corner is real, uh, because it is death, right? Symbolically, it is death. Like, it is the thing that is waiting for her to die and, uh, you know, it, it, that's what's going to happen to her if she does not do something to try to uh, get out of this situation. And so then she has a, another flashback to uh, the eclipse uh, when her dad cut uh, window panes, like old window panes mm-hmm. out and then like smoked the glass. And then the the idea being that you like smoke the glass and then you stack the panes and then you can like look through the panes at the eclipse without harming your eyes. Uh, and when he did this, he told her to be careful and like to wear gloves while she was handling it because the edges were still sharp and he didn't want her to cut herself. Um, and then she realizes that she can use the water glass to cut herself uh, cut her hand and then use her blood as uh, lubricant to slide her hands out of the handcuffs. Because as it happens, uh, Gerald couldn't get a tiny uh, lady feminine handcuffs. Apparently, there's two different types of handcuffs that are manufactured. Yep, they have um, uh, they have serial have number names, this. too, and we can learn about those. So in case you're curious and, about that, that's fucking in there. 
They're also Krieg brand, which I didn't even bother looking this up. I don't know if Krieg is even a real brand, but that has shown up in like four books now as Krieg brand locks. Huh. Uh, I think it first showed up in the dark half where uh, for one of Thad's like crime novels, he did research and he found he. he oh, maybe. No, no, no. It was um, I think it was Misery. Uh, I think it was when Paul Sheldon in Misery was writing one of his novels, he had to consult with like a guy who was like a petty criminal turned like security consultant or something who told him that Krieg locks were the uh, best locks that money could buy. And so I've noticed since then, like basically every book, there's like a Krieg lock or in this case, Krieg handcuffs. Uh, So... Uh, that just means ultimately, right, that Gerald got the slightly larger brand of handcuffs, uh, that she has a little more wiggle room. And so she uh, does what I just said. She breaks the water glass, cuts her hand, and then tries to yank her hand out of the handcuffs. And in the process, because of how she has cut herself, uh, she degloves herself, right? Uh, uh, if you are not familiar with that term, that means she skins her hand. It's awful. Yeah. I hate it. Mm-hmm. It is all extremely described. It, yes, extremely described. And I don't care for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like, Ugh! I was like, ah, ah! <laughs> <laughs> didn't did not like it. Yeah. Uh, so she does that. And this is one of those things where, uh, by God, this book could have ended. <laughs> it could have been done. Like, just be- let her out. You know, uh, all of these like. Voices are in her head, it, and it like it doubles down in a way that's like bad, right? Because what we're about to find out is that the space cowboy, the mm-hmm. slender man, the guy, mm-hmm. he's a real guy. Mm-hmm. But she gets hurt. You know, she does her hand. She gets out. She runs to the car. She gets mm-hmm. in the car. She from 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 is going. She's like gonna pass out and stuff like that. And she looks in the rearview mirror. He's back there. Ooh, mm-hmm. it's scary. This is a mental projection. It's not really him. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't care for that. Yeah, it's it's so silly. So, like, what happens is um, she, like, you know, degloves her hand, uh, but she manages to get out of the bed. She manages to push over the bed. She gets the uh, uh, the keys to the handcuff. She unlocks herself, and then she goes to the phone that's at the side of the bedroom. And as I said, this is just where the novel could end because that phone could just work and she could call the cops and like, bam, like we can have a little coda at the end that shows, you know, what her life is like now. We could we could still do kind of what we end up doing, uh, but we don't need what happens next, uh, which is it turns out the phone is not working and she can't remember if it's because Gerald unplugged it because this was the thing he liked to do when they went to the vacation home is that he would like unplug the phones so they wouldn't be bothered. I forgot about Um, this part too. Right. So she has to think through this and she's like, did Gerald unplug it or was it the space cowboy, which is how she thinks of the figure that she sees in the corner. Was it the space cowboy? Did he, did he cut the lines? Oh, I don't know. So, Oh, how am I going to, I can't call the anyone for help. How am I going to stop myself from bleeding to death? So she goes to the bathroom and she makes herself a a kind of like tourniquet glove out of, um, uh, sanitary napkins out of maxi pads. Uh, and then she's like stumbling through the house and she sees the space cowboy standing in Gerald's office. This is the one part of this whole ordeal that I actually would try to save in some way, Mm -hmm. uh, where he lifts up his little wicker basket again and like shakes it around. And she's just like, oh yeah, like he needs his, like he needs his due. And she takes off her wedding ring 
and she drops it into the basket and then leaves. Like, that's good. Like, that's good, like, symbolic, like... Uh, nice. Uh, and then, and then she does what she, what you just said, uh, like she has to go out and get in the car and then she has to drive the car so many miles down the road and then she has to think he's in the back seat, and then she crashes and then we jump forward. Actually, no, she doesn't crash because that's from the movie. We were shortcutting. Oh, yeah. She drives all the way to a gas station. Right, right, right. Like, passes out, basically, right? (laughs) Right. And then a guy at the gas station recognizes her. And, uh, yeah. Uh, So we let let the movie color our memories there. But that's just all to say that, like, she's... She, the, the main situation of the novel is over, right? The, the steam has kind of been let out. And from this point forward, it's just uh, screaming at the book, like, why are you still going on? Like, why didn't someone take an editor's right. pen to you? Well, because it, because it turns into misery, right? Like, it mm-hmm. turns into the balm for human immiseration is writing your way out of the problem. Mm-hmm. And like doing like it's almost like you can't help it because it's what he's been doing in these like crime novels, right? Like someone writes they they write and do a misery on one hand and then crime novel their way out of the problem on the other, which is like, you know, the maneuver of learning about the the people. And, you know, we saw that in the dark half and in uh, the movie about the guy with the hat or not the movie, the, the book about the guy with the hat. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> With the hat. The hat guy. With the hat. The, the hat uh, ghost. You mean the gunslinger? No, the hat ghost. The man oh. who is a ghost but shouldn't be. Uh, 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 secret window, secret garden. Yeah, there you, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Like, that <laughs> happens in that, too. Um, and also in another one of the books we just read. So, um, anyway. It, we just kind of run through, like, oh, crap. Like I was saying before, like, ah, I'm Stephen King. I got to do my Stephen King stuff. Ah, ah, ah. And then we get all this other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, we jump forward. She is now a writer. Uh, Her husband's law firm, in order to save face, has uh, tried to keep the most salacious details of her ordeal out of the papers. Mm -hmm. Um, Seems like everything's going to be hunky-dory, except she's still having these, like, uh, night terrors about the space cowboy coming back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it turns out the space cowboy is real. He is a guy named Raymond Allen Joubert. Uh, and he is Ed Jean plus Willie Horton. Uh, yeah, wait, who's Willie Horton? Like the, hold on. <laughs> Let me look. Okay. Wow. Did a bunch of murder? What not? I don't I have no idea who this person is. Oh, really? Uh, so. Honestly, uh, I, I'm going to be honest. You said Willie Horton and I immediately thought. That can't be the Reverend Horton Heat, right? No, it is not. No, uh, uh, Willie Horton was a uh, black man, um, but a murderer, also a felon, uh, who uh, was the subject of an attack ad that George H.W. Bush oh. ran against Michael Dukakis. I do, in the, okay, okay, right? okay. And I do know the accu- I just don't know his name. But yeah, right, right, right. The accusation being that um, uh, Michael Dukakis, who was the he was uh, the Massachusetts governor, uh, had been uh, too uh, soft on crime 
uh, he had let like too many people out of prisons. Uh, Willie Horton was one of them. Um, and it was considered to be a, a very successful attack ad because it was a it was basically a dog whistle, right? It was right, a, a right. racist dog whistle about this black man um, being a, a murderer and serial killer. And that like this is what Michael Dukakis is going to let onto your streets kind of thing. Right. And he's like a re- recidivist who like murdered and then got out and then murdered again. Right. Like, yes, uh, okay, exactly. Right. Right. Which is what Jobert does. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jobert is a guy who uh, has. I don't know if he's murdered up until a certain point, but he's definitely like been in altercations. Um, There's been trouble. Uh, He goes into the system uh, and then eventually he gets let out as a a cured, which is obviously not true. And then this is what I was uh, sort of gesturing at when I said that, um, uh, you know, there's there's something where Steve is taking like the known kind of story or sort of like the popular version of the story and then trying to uh, needle it a little bit by... uh, having jesse be like say molested by her extremely upstanding upper middle class wealthy father um here the thing that the little detail that he puts out is that uh really jubert was probably let out because the uh government had slashed the funding for the institution that he was in Mm -hmm. um uh so anyway he ends up uh wandering like western maine uh being a necrophiliac cannibalistic serial killer who collects various trophies and uh makes things out of human skin much in the manner of Ed Jean he also has acromegaly uh which is a um uh a, a condition that makes his head grow very very large also makes him very tall has a, a sort of like a, a very long forearms and things like that it makes him look uh uh well, the, again, you can go check out the bonus episode, but uh, there's a particular actor uh, who has acromegaly who then mm-hmm. plays this role in that film. Right. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, I mean, it's just as, straight up Steve's like it's it again. It's like, oh, I'm Stephen King. I do my Stephen King thing. Right. It's like, yeah, someone who is extremely, uh, uh, you know, like mentally unwell, but in a way that like doesn't fit any like real world categorization. Right. He's like as we've talked about before, like medievally mad, right? You mm-hmm. just ambiently and uh, undefinedly uh, a madman. Um, right. And whose madness is an evil, right? Inside of him is replicated in his body, right? Like right. it is straight up like medieval teratology. <laughs> yeah. Like yes. The evil in you comes out, right? You know, the, the, the worst among us is the, you know, the least normatively bodied or whatever you know it's um it's a kind of thing that like it just doesn't i mean i don't think it flies anymore in a general sense but it's like almost again it's almost parodic in the way it's done here it's just so flatly like yeah he's an evil weird looking guy who Mm -hmm. is a sex creep murderer right get on board i'm steve (laughs) and it's presented as just like this full-on like pivot into essentially like the you know the voice of like a true crime novel as jesse like writes the summary of all of the things that he's done and uh his history and where he came from and how he was eventually captured and this that and the other it's it's just wild and again it's like why is this here like what this uh i i characterologically i guess we could say that jesse is getting closure here uh but i'm not getting closure more questions are in fact being raised for me because it feels like we have stepped into a completely different story suddenly 
It's a, and it's like uh, it's just lesser than the other stories that we've read in the swarm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think it would be fine. Like this book could be saved in this regard, in some ways, right? Um, and uh, one of the ways you could do it. This is a horrifying thing for me to suggest, but Steve could have written his way out of it. <laughs> this could have been the first. Jesse in the bed could have been the first act. You know, mm-hmm. and that's interesting to me. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, essentially what it is is it's like uh, a, a a novel, you know the the Gerald's game stuff with a coda attached to mm-hmm. the back, and the coda is like one of the middle of the you know it's uh, Pangborn reconstructing the crime in the middle of uh, the dark calf. Yes, uh huh. You know, but but also, what if misery was happening at the same time, <laughs> and like someone was banging out their wildest you know imaginations and and doing therapy on the page, right? It's just structurally a mess. Just a mess. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not like a fun one. Yeah. Yep. And um, I mean, that's basically it. She uh, goes to see him while he's being arraigned or sentenced or something. Um, and even though the guy who her husband's firm like assigned to her to kind of like help her with this stuff, he recommends like not showing her face because then people will be asking because no one knows that they're connected. Right. They, they, they kept it so under wraps. Um, that no one knows that he uh, was in Jesse's house. Uh, and the guy's like, hey, like this might get people to start asking questions about you, but she has to go see him. And she does, and he recognizes her, and then he echoes her own words back to her, uh, the thing that she said to him, which is, uh, you're only made of moonlight, you're not real. Right. Uh, um, yep. 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 The uh, what's interesting here is a couple uh, things, a couple interesting like pieces that I thought about the Jobert thing. Mm-hmm. Um, although, hold on, let me look a thing up really quickly before I say anything. We're gonna keep talking. Um, okay, interesting. Juniper Hill, where Jobert. Yes. It's that's mm-hmm. like a Kingiverse thing. Yes, it is. That's fun. Mm-hmm. The uh, but the thing I wanted to, to note is that Jobert gets out of Juniper Hill in '84. It's it's the Reagan closing of the asylum stuff. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. which I think is 1980. If I was I was trying to look it up here, no, '81. Okay, and, and I like he done it in California way earlier, but uh, yeah. So it, like, there's this implicit like, uh, you know, chickens coming home to roost kind of thing with uh, Jobert terrorizing the folk. Well, that's a uh, we got Ronald Reagan to blame for that. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, that's it. Yeah. The, and then the whole thing is like what the thing she is writing is a letter to her friend. Um, uh, Ruth. Ruth. Yeah, sorry. And she like sends it at the end and like you can write your way out of like the horrors of reality. Mm-hmm. Great. Fun. Yeehaw. Yeah. We did it. This yeah. book's not very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about some segments. Well, before we talk about segments, <laughs> is Dolores Claiborne a better book? Uh, I'm about maybe a quarter of the way through, maybe a third of the way through right now. What I will say here is that I've always liked Dolores Claiborne better. And so far in my reading of rereading of Dolores Claiborne, um, it's not as it's not been as good as I recalled, but it's still been better than this experience right as i said like i i kind of 
really enjoyed Gerald's game, despite my expectations when I first read it. Mm-hmm. This time, this reread, not so great. Uh, Dolores Claiborne has always been very specific and like defined in my mind. It's actually been one of my long time like I don't know like deep cut favorite kings. Mm-hmm. Is uh, it I, your Tommy Knockers? Mm, I wouldn't say it's my Tommy Knockers exactly. We'll talk about it more next month. Um, I don't know where it's going to land for me as of this current reread, um, but it's it is still Steve doing something different, and I think overall his experiments are maybe more more successful if not more successful uh the things he's doing in Dolores Claiborne are less likely right just because of the nature of the design of the thing uh right, they're right. less likely to to veer off into some of this uh stuff that we don't like about Gerald's game yeah i mean look i i admire the guy for taking a swing you you always got look you got the ball coming at you you got to swing okay mm-hmm. you only get so many uh you know balls but uh, swing and a miss. Hey, oh, all right. Woo. We got segments. My favorite kingism is where we talk about a part in the book that we like the most, or we think is most kingy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael, what's your favorite kingism in this uh, Gerald's game? Yeah, something about uh, the the wording, prose style, whatever that is kingy. Uh, and for me, this is an easy one. It's one of the things that stuck with me from my first reread to now is the fact that Jesse calls uh, Joubert when he shows up in her bedroom. She starts thinking of him as the space cowboy, mm-hmm. uh, which is her remembering the lyrics to um, the Steve Miller band song, The Joker, Uh which is it, it, the way describing this. This sounds like the corniest, like most inefficient Stephen King thing, right? Uh, that this yes. char- and in the book, it is the corniest and most inefficient thing. <laughs> I think I think it's terrible. Absolutely and terrible. It's astonishing to me that this is your favorite part of the book. I just I love like there's something so cool about uh, the randomness with which this song comes into her mind. And then the fact that she fixates on the phrase the space cowboy as the thing to call it, because uh, it just really sells like her experience of the thing to me as this Mm -hmm. uh, thing that's like totally weird and alien like it you know she's she's talking about it as a thing that doesn't even belong in the world with her right Right, it makes it feel like it's something that's like stumbled out of another novel which is maybe why we have to like have our own little novella about him at the end um but just like you know just like this horrible pale thing in the corner of your room again it's like it's the slender man thing right it's Mm -hmm. like what is that oh that's the space cowboy yeah, I mean, I I remember the first like time I saw the Slender Man from what? That's from Marble Hornets, right? Originally, uh, I don't. I think it was the something awful thread, and then got picked up by Marble Hornets, right? But but like the first uh, video image that was made, I think oh, that came yeah. out of Marble Hornets. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, right? Not just the not just the photos. Yeah, but like the uh, looking through the screen door thing, that image, yeah. and you can kind of see him over there on the side. I mean, it works. Yeah. Like it's a scary image, and it's here. Like. That entire phenomenon is just like right here, and I think you're right. Like, uh, it's good. It the 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 space cowboy like where it lands is goofy to me, but it's great character writing, which I, it sounds like that's what you're pointing out. That right, we're just so close to to her in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if what if she what, would it have worked for you if she called him Maurice? <laughs> no. Woo woo. Uh, mine is the thing where she talks about where she really thinks she might get beat. She might die. That's the part oh, that, yeah. that is on 171 for me. And it starts with, uh, uh, you know, she like really figures it out. 
you know, uh, it's when her arms go numb, which I actually liked all of that in the book. I think that's really good where she's like, oh, my, you know, my physical body is failing. Uh Oh, mm-hmm. like those are good panicky moments that, you know, they're that's good horror writing specifically. Uh, but yeah, people died in accidents. Of course, she supposed she had seen hundreds, maybe even thousands of death clips on the TV news during her lifetime. And then she just like runs through a million examples of seeing dead people on TV that, you know, and then some of them famous, you know, John Belushi uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this Carl Walinda person who dies. Uh, but then she like cashes that out to but until now she had seen somewhat uh, she had somehow never realized there were people inside those people people just like her people who hadn't had the slightest idea they would never eat another cheeseburger watch another round of final jeopardy and please make sure your answer is in the form of a question or call their best friends to say that penny poker on thursday night or shopping on saturday afternoon seemed like a great idea no more beer no more kisses in your fantasy of making love in a hammock during a thunderstorm was never going to be fulfilled because you were going to be too busy being dead any morning you roll out of bed might be your last. And like that could be pat and goofy. And mm-hmm. that's not, you know what I mean? It, it, it's such a, you know, uh, you know, maybe I'm feeling old. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, 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 yeah. I feel like on the animal man bonus episode we did, like, I was just like, give me that heartfelt saccharine horse shit, like feed it in me in my veins. Right. But like, it's just an honest thing about death, right? And I, I, yeah. I really appreciate that. And you know, that's phrased and written in such a way that only King can do, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, he, it's jokey and not, it's playful. Uh, but you know, like two pages later, we're she might be dying. You know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. he's able to balance that. No, not everyone can do it. I, it's real kingy to me. Mm-hmm. What in the Kingiverse? Uh, the segment where we uncover connections between what we just read and other things in the greater Stephen King continuity. We've already talked about this to, to some extent. Uh, obviously, Dolores Claiborne is being foreshadowed here. It's a companion novel, and uh, it has more to say about that eclipse. And we'll talk about that next month. Uh, well, can, you can already brought a, up. Can I ask oh. you a clarifier about that really quick? Sure that, thing. That, that you know. Uh, uh-huh. Up here in the top, you you uh, uh, in some of our other notes, I don't think you mentioned this, but in the path of the eclipse omnibus, oh, yeah. can you say yeah. a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was just going to cover it next time since we didn't get it here, but I can oh, do it I now that you've asked. Yeah, you know, I'm just curious fun. about it in a general sense. Right. Uh, so at some point, uh, these these books were marketed uh, as being related in some way. Um, the... A uh, thing that I read said that there was talk from King uh, that the publisher actually, and this was Viking, uh, just by the mm-hmm. way, this was this and uh, Dolores, or Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne were the last two books in the Viking deal that we mentioned a couple bu- uh, books past. Um, uh, there was some talk about uh, binding these together in an omnibus collection called In the Path of the Eclipse. And so you would have both novels together, both Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne. Uh, and that just never happened. It never materialized. Hmm. Uh, but there was some talk about it, at least at some point. Oh, so that's why. So I've got an original printing. It's got a big eclipse on the spine. That that was mm-hmm. probably to to demonstrate that those things were related. Yes, I believe so. And I believe uh, 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 the first edition of Dolores Claiborne also had that mark on the spine as well. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so you already brought up Juniper Hill, which is uh, the mental institution that's shown up um, a couple of times in some Castle Rock and uh, some Castle Rock stories and in it. Uh, so 
unsurprisingly, dairy is mentioned here. Um, we get a little bit of, you know, we, we, last time we said we were done with Castle Rock. Steve was like, Castle Rock is over. I'm done with that. That was the last Castle Rock story, except for, uh, this little, this little mini novel about Raymond Allen Joubert and how he was caught by none other yeah! than... None other than Norris Ridgwick, who is now the sheriff of Castle Rock. That's yeah! right. And Andy from Twin Peaks is sheriff now, and he caught this dude. Let's give it up for Norris Ridgwick. I fucking love that in the book. When that happened, I stood up and cheered and walked around. I did a victory pose. <laughs> I fu- he 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 murdered. He sniped right through the dome. His high school bully from a moving car. <laughs> and then he went on to become sheriff and catch, you know, whatever, the, the main murderer, you know, like right. the, the most dastardly devil on the fucking East Coast. Castle Rock's seen some shit, man. <laughs> you has. know? Yeah. Like, even if they're, like, they're hanging out because they explain, like, since Castle Rock blew up or whatever, you know, they're they're like, sheriff's department is in a... It's like a shed or something, like a yeah, big metal yeah. building. Like yeah, a, it's like, like a, in a temporary structure, <laughs> right? And and they like got to go put him in, and they like go got to go back and get his van, and it stinks. And yeah, like there's just a lot of novel there at the end. But yeah, honestly, just make that the other book, right? <laughs> like make Norris Ridgewick's adventure catching the the big evil main cannibal. Give me that fucking book. I'd read that. Yeah, that five <laughs> pages is better than the rest of this book. <laughs> Uh, uh, another like more implicit connection is that during Joubert's trial, uh, there is a, a piece of evidence or it's called a uh, exhibit 217, uh, that I don't, I don't, I didn't even write down what it was. I think maybe it's his little fisherman's creel. It's not actually a fisherman's creel. That's me, uh, doing another little King of Earth thing there, like pointing mm-hmm. forward to, to Black House. Um, but he's got his little wicker basket and I think it's mm-hmm. called exhibit 217, which, uh, seems calculated to evoke room 217 from the shining i don't really know why steve is doing that but it seems to me unlikely he did that accidentally uh then the last connection i noted uh is that gerald and jesse's oh wait no 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 they're on a different lake jesse yeah her childhood place yes her childhood uh uh uh, lake house right the one she went to with her family um that is on dark score lake uh which we will revisit in a couple books we're going to revisit that in bag of bones yeah did you uh did you notice does your copy of this book have a map in the front yes uh it is a, this is the first official where is everything in Maine, right? Yeah, I think this is the first official, like, Maine Kingiverse map. Uh, and yeah. I think it's done because, precisely because this map shows you the path of the totality of the eclipse. Right. And But it is interesting we get, like, uh, um, we don't get Salem's Lot, right? Because it's not on the maps. No. Is that true? Like, I don't well, see it. But you can see Haven. Haven's still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dark Score Lake, you can see where that is. And the Little Tall Island, that was the thing that really, I was like, oh. Yeah, that's, yeah. Dolores Claiborne. Right. But also that other book. Storm of the Century. Storm of the Century. Yeah. Because you, you've uh, explained that to me before, too. It's really funny. Here's Mexico over there. Do you think yeah. that implies you you think that implies that they were in Mexico the whole time when they went to Mexico and Salem's lot? You think they really went to Maine? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh, uh, Steve's waiting for that. He's going to drop that at like the very, very end when he retires for real. That's going to be his like mind fuck move. <laughs> Deal with it. 
But uh, but yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting that like in a Stephen King book, they actually told us this is where it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Castle Rock is much further inland than I thought. Me uh, too. Yeah, I've yeah. always thought in my mind Castle Rock is like kind of near coastal, and uh, it's not. Not even a little yeah. bit. No. Uh. So yeah, those oh, are. Yeah, there's those are Camden the- too. What took place in yeah. Camden? Is that where? Uh, strawberry spring or whatever it's called takes place oh gosh i don't know okay camden might also be real i think it might be real oh let me look Camden, maine yeah it is but uh let me see let me see on the wiki if they're like in the stephen king story blah 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 blah. music and culture thinner uh no no that's where thinner was shot that's why okay yeah there you go okay there you go uh Yep, and then Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Bunch of songs. This, this is a this is a book that is full of songs, mm-hmm. but uh, that are not named. You know, like they don't say like, "Oh, the song by Paul Simon, Crazy Love." You know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She just sings the little bit or like the lyric or whatever. So I bet you had to do some work here. Yes, yeah, no, I had to like reverse engineer a lot of these based on lyrics. Uh, yeah, this is where we go through, again, if this is your first episode, this is the segment where we go through all of the songs that are sung or mentioned in this book, and we rate them, because Steve is a lover of music, and so are we. Uh, song number one is Crazy Love by Paul Simon, one star. Damn, you're going after Paul Simon? I thought you liked Paul Simon. I, I don't like this song. This song sounds like, it's like what, uh, the song that would play... Uh, on the beach during the summer in a farming sim game uh, with then, like, the most repetitive and annoying vocal track. What are you farming during the summer? Where are you farming on the beach? What? You can go out there and fish. There's, like, different seasonal fish, Cameron. Do you, you go get And also, the there's boat? probably someone that you can marry out there. Cool. Oh, you, you? I thought you were talking about, like, farm sim, but you mean, like, a Stardew Valley. Yes, that, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I was like, who, what are you doing on the beach? Planting corn on the beach? You can't do that. You can't make a horse go vert. Uh, I got John Barry's Born Free. I, uh, you know, this is a rare dual score. Okay, you ready? <laughs> okay. One star, because the song is terrible. <laughs> like, it's okay, really yeah. bad and overused, and I don't understand why. Is enjoyed by anyone. Five stars for the audacity of referencing John Barry's Born Free, a song that we all know is bad. I right. there can't be any fans of this song in real life, right? Like, <laughs> oh, and so like five star him. usage, one star actual song. They're gonna leave us so many angry reviews. Don't leave any angry reviews to me. I don't want to read <laughs> any angry reviews. I'm happy to hear an impassioned defense of Born Free. You know, let's let's make it constructive rather than uh-huh. destructive. <laughs> uh, I've made a statement, which is not destructive. It's just factual. John Barry's Born Free is terrible. Now, if you <laughs> like it, you can explain that to me, and I'll hear you. I, I'm willing to hear a case. I'm not. I'm not ideological on John Barry's Born Free here, right? I'm just calling him mm-hmm. like I see him. Um, I'm willing to be persuaded. Huh. All right. Well, uh, next song for me is "One More Summer" by the Rainmakers. This is one star. This song is really boring. Oh dang! I got a yeah. uh, Niccolo. Uh, Mary Provost. Mm-hmm. And it's good. I like it. I don't think is there a single Niccolo song that's worse than three stars. Uh, I don't know. I what else did he do? Did he do? Um, well, I he the loves bro- the he loves the sound of breaking glass. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking he came up before, and I think I might have given him a really low rating, but I don't remember what Jesus, the song was. Jesus Christ! 
just get on board. Know. Let's get on the thing. Yeah. Look, we hate Bob Dylan and we hate the Beatles and we love Nick Lowe. Okay. <laughs> and Eddie Cochran. Jesus. And I'm also a little bit of a pissant about the Beach Boys whenever they show up. Oh, that's true. That's right. Uh, if, you're an Amer- if you sing American standards, we're, we're gunning for you. Deal with Well, my it. thing about the Beach Boys is that they have so many songs that are less than two minutes, which like barely count as songs. Yeah, yeah um, I guess that's true. If, if, you're, if, if there's a song on this mixtape that I get that is less than two minutes, like I have to give it one star because that's just barely worth my time. Wow, it doesn't meet uh, the definition of song, which means it cannot uh-huh. be evaluated appropriately. Yep. In a... Uh, yep. Uh, uh, Marvin Gaye, I'll be doggone. Uh, this is three stars. This, it's a Marvin Gaye song. It's not, you know, one of the uh, the real big hits, but it's pretty good. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. I got Marvin Gaye's "Can I Get a Witness." Three stars, similar. I th- I feel the same thing about Marvin Gaye. I don't know if he has any songs that are like, you know, worse than replacement level. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just great. You yeah. know, hard hard to be hard to be bad when you're so good. A thing I uh, cannot say about the Beatles. <laughs> Uh, completely unlike the Beatles are the Duprees, whose song You Belong to Me, I have given two stars because it is possibly the most generic, like, you know, white doo-wop group singing that I have ever encountered. Like, it's <laughs> if, if, an, if an AI was told to generate a song by a white doo-wop group. It would so it's sound like, like one this. of those. Is this song in uh, Stand By Me? That's my that's my uh, like, you know, level of. How how doo-wop is it? You know? I mean, it it is n- very doo-wop in the sense that it is unmistakably that, uh, but then it is not very doo-wop in that it is never as good as you want that to be. You know those moments where in, in like the song where kind of like the note gets high or, or the part where they start the recitation, you know, during mm-hmm, the bridge mm-hmm, where he mm-hmm. like addresses the beloved or whatever. And right. you, you're like you're like feeling it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh no, like it's like it, it's like what if you did all of those moves, but with like none of the actual like hit to it? Is this one of the songs like Is it one much of more subdued than that? Nowhere, nowhere as interesting as what you just did. Oh, no one does a shibidibidoop. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. No. Hey, let me read you some names of albums from them. Okay. You belong to me. Have you heard? And then in 1968, Total Recall. running out ahead of the trend there yeah i know right uh well look i got i got a five star i got an all-time banger i got steve miller's the joker Woo! hard to be mad about that one i was talking about my friend david uh, david buddy david who was on uh game study study buddies uh on Mm -hmm. our episode about the rin fairs where he uh told us about his experience being a Ren Faire blacksmith. I was talking about this. He, at one point, only had a tape deck in his car, and he had the Steve Miller Band multiple albums, and he was like, yeah, they're all good. Like, every Steve <laughs> Miller Band album is good. Uh, and also, they're all on tape, so you can do it. Great. But five stars. The Joker mm-hmm. is an all-time classic. Uh, it's better than any song the Beatles ever wrote. Like, mm-hmm. I feel confident in saying that. No question. Yeah. Uh... Talk oh, you're not going to co-sign that? You're not going to oh. back me up on that? You don't want to hear, I, I hear about okay, it? Okay, so like, I, I like the Joker. I like this song. Mm-hmm. I haven't listened to too much Steve Miller Band other than that, though. So I don't oh, know. Wow. I'm not going to co-sign all of the all albums right. being good. That's got to be between you and David. All right. Uh, Woody Guthrie, Talkin' Blues. 
one star. I actually like Woody Guthrie, but this is just like one of his kind of nothing songs, in my opinion. For a second, I was super happy because I thought it was Mean Talkin' Blues, which is Mm -hmm. the superior Woody Guthrie song, and it fits into a genre of song from, say, like... Oh, I don't know. Sympathy for the Devil and Mr. Bad Example by Warren Zevon, mm-hmm. uh, where it's just like singing a song about how you're a huge asshole and that's just it. That's what yep. the song is about. Yep. Um, but no, Talking Blues is about how you have to grease up your feet and slide around. I think I'm good. I thought you were going to say it's part of a genre of song about blues that talk. <laughs> no, <laughs> part of not a cohort even. of two songs. <laughs> uh, that sounds awful. Yeah. That sounds like a song that might show up in the the uh in the Netflix movie version of Gerald's game. <laughs> which uh people can go oh. check out on patreon.com slash range touch to hear what we have to say about that movie and feet. Yeah. The final song for the thing is The Turtles Happy Together, which I unfortunately also must give uh one star to. The, again, you've had I think you've had more of these reviews than I have. This gets one star not really because the song is bad, but because it is so overplayed mm-hmm. uh, that whatever artistry might have once been in it has been robbed from it by the military entertainment complex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like that Smash Brothers commercial, that first one. Was that on there? Yeah, the the like very first the Nintendo sixty four Smash Brothers. I remember this. The uh, commercial for that was like people in giant mascot suits dressed as like Mario and Donkey Kong and Pikachu, like running through a field of flowers while this song played, and they just started beating the crap out of each other. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what to do with that. I don't remember that commercial, so I trust you. <laughs> Uh, that's it. That's all the songs. This might be the lowest scoring mixtape on average we've ever, ever had. Yeah, it was a really bad one, I feel like. It's not good, yeah. Yeah. I feel like Dolores Claiborne, which is our next book, but it might be a a book with no songs in it. I, yeah, I haven't, I think, well, no, no, there's one that was mentioned. I've gotten one so far, so we'll have, we'll have at least one thing on the mixtape for the next go around. (laughs) Hmm. When we talk about Dolores Claiborne, as we've said about 70,000 times so far. Wait, what did you say? You cut out. Sorry, you cut out right oh. in the middle of that. <laughs> uh, I, I said that um, uh, next time we're reading Dolores Claiborne, which we've mentioned like a million times. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I just heard yeah. you say next time things so far. <laughs> Yeah, no, typically we we, uh, wait until the very end of the episode to reveal what's coming up next. But in this case, it was just impossible not to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, that's going to be a run again with the regulators in desperation. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, And we've already talked about the Patreon. Is there anything else we can tell them about that, Cameron, other than maybe they could leave a review? And if it's five stars and funny, you might read it out loud on the air. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great thing to tell the audience. Because I haven't pulled it up yet. You can keep telling them that. Hey, if you leave us five stars over on the Apple Podcast or wherever you can do it, but I think I can only see reviews over over there. Uh, if you leave us five stars uh, over there uh, and you write a funny review, I'll, I'll read it. I'll choose one. Sometimes we have too many to read, which is a good problem to have. Um, and uh, look, here's one. This is from Mega Crane. I'm going to read more than one. But I'm going to read Mega Crane? Mega crane. The biggest crane imaginable. No, C R A I N. It's like a cranium. Oh. Big brain. Oh, I was thinking it was a really big bird. Yeah. 
go for that. Look, uh, <laughs> someone else register with the name M-E-G-A-C-R-A-N-E, and we'll, I'll read your review, too. <laughs> Just for Michael. This person says, uh, five stars, getting them numbers up. I'm here to get this 4.9 up to a five and show solidarity to Cameron and our shared animosity towards Bob Dylan. Thank you. Oh. I appreciate it. We are still rocking a solid 4.9 uh, out of five. We got to get to that five. We want to we want to get up those iTunes rankings, y'all. Mm-hmm. So get on there. Log into your account you haven't used since 2013. Hit that five stars. It'll help us out a huge amount. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm gonna read this one. This is funny. I, you know, it's not always I want to read a comment that's about the production of the show, mm-hmm. but sometimes it can be good. You ready? Okay. Five stars. Starfleet Voyager. This is good stuff. Wait, Starfleet Voyager is like the subject, or is that the name of the person reviewing it? That's the name of the person, and the the subject is this is good stuff. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> it's from Starfleet Voyager as okay. like the entity. Uh-huh. Okay. There's a moment, I think, in the Four Past Midnight episode where Michael makes a spontaneous weird gremlin noise. It's really funny, and they're both laughing, and then Cameron says, okay, now give us a clean one, and you could feel the temperature in the room go down 25 degrees. So great. And I mean, the Stephen King analysis stuff is good, too. <laughs> it's good. Sometimes you gotta get the sound clean for when people make the soundboard. Mm-hmm. It's funny. You gotta make a thing. Oh, yeah. So leave those reviews. Let us know what uh, you think. You know, I'm going to say, let me, I'm not going to read the whole review because it's just a very oh, okay. kind and normal review. This is from oh, Brett Kind Wyatt. and normal. It's kind and normal, but, you know, it's like informative. God uh-huh. forbid I read an informative review on the show. But they, uh, but Brett Wyatt says a really nice thing here and says, uh, after two episodes of the show, I immediately signed up for the Patreon and have spent several dozens of hours devouring the backlog of content. It's always insightful. If rarely short. <laughs> so it's just a nice review. I just wanted to shout that out. Thanks thanks so much to Brett White. Thanks to Mega Crane and also to the potential future Mega Crane. Uh, Pre thanks. <laughs> and then to Starfleet Voyager, who hopefully has taken the clean sound and put it in the their own soundboard. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so leave those reviews and come back here next month when we will be talking about Dolores Claiborne and when they're doing that, Cameron. They're doing it for us, obviously, because yep. they they like this show and they want to support us. But who else are they doing it for? Oh, let's see. So I'm, let, let me count uh, Tabitha. You think it's Tabitha? Mm-hmm. No, wait. No, no, no. I kind of do this for Tabitha. I, I mean, Michael does it. But who are we doing it for? You yourself, <laughs> you do it for Tabitha. Uh-huh. We're doing it for, let me count. We do it for Owen? Mm. No, you're not. You're no, I'm doing it for Owen. <laughs> you're not doing this for Owen. We're skipping fairy tale. <laughs> uh, are we doing it for Joe? Joe doesn't need us. He does. That's right. He's he's rolling in it. He's got comic book money. Yeah. The most profitable <laughs> media for. <laughs> he's got Netflix money. He doesn't need us. Yeah. Are we doing it for the sister whose name I don't know? N- Naomi. You don't even. Oh, I forgot. Naomi? Yeah, I forgot that's the name. That's right. The Unitarian minister who lives in Florida. Yes. Are we doing it for her? Well, now now I am. Like, right, now that well, you've forgotten her. You know, we used to do it for Steve, but now we're doing it for Naomi. <laughs>